The material shared within this podcast is based on the personal experiences and learnings of the presenter. Coloplast has paid the presenter for sharing this information. Nothing within this podcast is intended to be used as medical advice and or used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Coloplast Professional Bowel and Bladder Matters Podcast, where we explore various important topics related to ostomies and continence. I am your host, Sharon Osgood. I am a certified wound ostomy continence nurse and clinical consultant with Coloplast. Today's podcast guest is Dr. Shasta Safter. Dr. Safter has been with the Center for Digestive Health and Nutrition since 2009 and currently serves as director of the Motility Center at Arnold Palmer Hospital for Children in Orlando, Florida. In 2015, she became a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine and leads the Healthy Lifestyles Program at Arnold Palmer Hospital. Dr. Safter's interests include motility disorders, eosinophilic esophagitis, allergic gastroenteropathies, defecation disorders, obesity medicine, and medical education. Our topic today is assessment of pediatric neurogenic bowel. Dr. Safter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So Dr. Safter, share with me a little bit about your practice and the patient population you treat. So I am a pediatric gastroenterologist, so I see children from the time they're born to 18, up to 20-year-olds. Um, and as a gastroenterologist, we are commonly referred patients who have all kinds of bowel dysfunction, uh, bowel problems. Um, I also lead our motility program here at Arnold Palmer Hospital, and I'm also part of our spina bifida program as well. So we do see a lot of patients who are referred to us for motility problems and uh, patients with spina bifida. So what most often brings these patients to your facility? Some of our patients do come from our own uh, NICU where they're born. We do have a fetal surgery program here, and some of our spina bifida patients are actually born here and um, come into our multidisciplinary spina bifida clinic. Some of our patients who may have motility problems are referred to our center. We are a tertiary center, and we do provide expertise in bowel management, in motility testing, in developing diagnostic and um, treatment plans for patients. And we do see a lot of second and third opinions, um, and generally people who are not satisfied with how things have been going for them in terms of bowel management and bowel function, they do uh, form a large amount of the patient population that we see. In your initial assessment, do you and how do you utilize the neurogenic bowel dysfunction scoring tool? The Neurogenic Bowel Dysfunction Scoring Tool is a very useful tool. It's a validated survey, and it is uh, it was published in 2014 for assessing neurogenic bowel dysfunction in patients with spina bifida. And so we use this tool as part of our initial assessment when we're seeing a patient who has a spina bifida. The tool is questions that are weighted and the scoring basically gives a clinician an idea in terms of the severity 
um, of bowel dysfunction. If a child is scoring um, at a certain level, we know that there is neurogenic bowel dysfunction at play, and then the higher the score tells us how uh, severe it is and how much it impacts quality of life. We use this as part of our initial assessment when we're meeting a patient for the first time to gauge where they're at in terms of their bowel function and bowel management. And we continue to use this as a tool during treatment as well to assess if the bowel management strategy is working for them or not. So could you just give me a broad overview of the clinical evaluations you perform to confirm a specific diagnosis? As a clinician, the uh, assessment begins in the clinic. When you first see your patient, you do a good history, you do a good physical exam, including a thorough rectal exam when you're dealing with patients who have um, pediatric uh, neurogenic bowel dysfunction. After we do a good physical exam and we can gauge um, any anatomical issues, we definitely use imaging modalities, depending again on the patient needs or requirements, you know, x-rays, MRIs, uh, ultrasound. Um, Sometimes we use transit studies, uh, which are a series of x-rays where a patient will swallow radiopaque capsules and you can assess colonic transit time. And we do at our center have the expertise in motility testing, which includes manometry. Um, We are able to do colonic manometry, which assesses the entire colonic function. And specifically, we can also do anorectal manometry, which is a, a tool to measure anorectal function. So this tool that you mentioned, manometry, um, could you speak a bit more about that? Sure. So um, anorectal manometry is a, is a tool, it is a motility test to assess a patient's anorectal function. Um, we gauge uh, several different uh, pieces of information by performing this test. It, it can be easily performed. Um, we perform it unsedated um, in most of our children because we are actually looking to our patients for information. Um, there is a small catheter with sensors on it that measures pressure. There is a small uh, balloon device that can be inflated and deflated by the performing um, clinician. And uh, when it's inserted uh, within the um, anorectal area, we're able to assess a patient's anal sphincter tone at rest. We're able to gauge where their rectal sensory threshold is by inflating and deflating the balloon. And that's where we want our patients to participate and able to answer questions for us in terms of where they can feel it, where they have uh, sensation or urgency when it comes to stooling. Um, It also helps us assess the strength of the muscles in the anorectal area. So we can have them perform a squeeze maneuver, for example, which measures the external anal sphincter. And this is very important in terms of maintaining continence. You know, a patient who has a deficit in um, the ability to perform an effective squeeze using the anal sphincter muscle is going to deal with uh, bowel incontinence issues. Um, We also uh, assess defecation dynamics when we have them bear down or push like they would be expulsing stool. And again, we're gauging to see how the sphincter complex um, reacts when they're using techniques to bear down and push and whether the rectum is generating enough adequate uh, pressure for expulsion. Um, we perform balloon expulsion tests where with a small inflated uh, balloon, we have a patient bear down like they would be uh, in trying to have a defecation and again, assess for the anorectal muscles to work effectively in having a bowel movement. So it provides a lot of useful information, I think, when you're trying to assess a patient um, and figure out uh, where their deficit is or what their strengths or weaknesses are and how 
best to help them in terms of their bowel management. How has the treatment process evolved over the years? Um, I think it has evolved um, in leaps and bounds because I think we are now able to tailor our treatment options to our patient because we have a better understanding of what our patient's um, level of function is, where their deficit is in terms of a neurogenic bowel dysfunction. We have better tools to understand their physiology, which helps us have a better um, options in terms of treatment plan. We're able to direct the treatment uh, according to different subsets of patients who may share the same physiology. So for example, a patient with spina bifida may have some of the same issues uh, as a person who was born with a congenital anorectal malformation, such as an imperforate anus. And they may share some of the same issues that someone may have after Hirschsprung's disease correction. Um, and so, again, I think our treatment options have evolved. We were very limited, and it was our approach was always just treating a constipation or inco- incontinence using a stool softener, a laxative, a small volume enema. And um, I think now, because we understand our patients better, we understand their physiology better, we are able to offer things such as transanal irrigation. We are able to offer for uh, more of a medically refractory cases, things such as neuromodulation, and and also surgical options and techniques that, um, um, you know, in earlier years, uh, we didn't have that many options. And so definitely technology is evolving, our understanding is evolving, and therefore our treatment options are evolving. You mentioned transanal irrigation. Um, how have you seen that impact your pa- uh, patient population? Uh, transanal irrigation has made a big impact in my patient population. Um, uh, I refer back to the 2017 uh, consensus statement. It was a statement on the review of best practice using transanal irrigation in children. And it talked a lot about how this modality was gave, gaining favor in terms of uh, medical management in, in different patient populations, patients who had spina bifida, patients with anorectal malformations, patients with medically refractory uh, functional constipation. Um, I, I've had a lot of experience. Uh, I, uh, I, I use it a lot as part of uh, my bowel management strategy in my uh, patients with spina bifida, and I've found it to be extremely effective. Um, it does have an impact in improving quality of life because these children who never had the ability to be bowel continent are for the first time. And uh, it's been a real game changer um, for my patients in terms of improving quality of life. It's simple, but yet it's effective. Um, And it's it's a technique and, you know, uh, performing it can be learned by a caregiver and by a child. And we have a lot of children who are getting uh, more and more independent in terms of management uh, of their bowel function using transanal irrigation. Um, And I've also found the application of transanal irrigation um, to not just be limited to my patients with spina bifida, but in other patient populations, again, who may share similar physiology, such as patients with anorectal malformations. And again, some um, patients who have severe dysmotility, uh, where again, functional constipation has been refractory and has failed all of the traditional um, strategies that are usually used in managing these patients. So it, for me, um, and for what I do, it has been a game changer and impacted my patient population in a very positive way. In closing, where do you see the future in the world of neurogenic bowel management? 
I see the future being bright, and I think things are going to continue to improve. I think in my scope of practice, um, from where we were a few years ago to where we are now, I've seen so much improvement in terms of how we manage our patients. Um, Patients' quality of life is a huge factor. Our patients are living longer. Um, Just as with everything medical technology evolves, these patients globally on all fronts are doing better, living longer, um, and having good quality of life and keeping them um, functional is is so important and gratifying. And uh, to me, I I see that uh, neurogenic bowel dysfunction is maybe a small part of their life, but definitely impacts them in a big way. And we've definitely come a long way, and I think we're going to continue to do very well. So I'm very optimistic about where we're going with uh, neurogenic bowel management. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bowel and Bladder Matters podcast, part of Coloplast Professional, where we believe clinician education related to ostomies and continence matters. For more educational resources from Coloplast, visit us at coloplast.us professional.